Alright, well hopefully you had a, you had a chance to, uh, to read through 1 Thessalonians at least, in, uh, in 2 Thessalonians at least a couple of times. I, I, I read somewhere that if you want to know what Paul believes, read Romans. If you want to know what Paul is like, read First and Second Thessalonians, particularly First Thessalonians. And if you read the, this letter, you get an idea of what Paul was like. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what would I have liked Paul? Would I have wanted to hang out with Paul? Now, before you answer that question, remember, anybody who hung out with Paul usually spent a lot of time in jail. Um, but I'm just talking personality-wise. You know, sometimes Paul gets a bad rap. He, he he gets he gets a he, he you know I always thought Paul was one of these you know he's task oriented driver you know go to one town to the next and you know and, and the whole thing with John Mark hey if he's not on board you know we throw him under the bus so, you know you, you, but when you read First Thessalonians by the way if you just read the end of the book of Romans I dare you to list as many friends in your life that Paul had in his I mean it's amazing. It's incredible. We re, we just got through the book of Acts, and and remember on his in his way to Jerusalem, he met with the Ephesian elders in Miletus, and what was it that caused them to weep when he said, "I, I won't see you anymore," and 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 the text says they literally hung on his neck, they wept over the fact that they'd never see Paul again. And then when I read First and Second Thessalonians, I thought Paul was was the quintessential people person. He had he had a real love for people. Paul was not just a, a talking head on a video screen that appears on Sunday morning to preach a sermon then recedes into the background and you never see it. Paul was intensely passionate about people. And, and, and we see that in this letter, especially to First Thessalonians. We see it in Second Corinthians too. Um, but, but in First Thessalonians especially, we see, really see... The heart of Paul. In, in chapter 1, Paul takes that passion for people and his passion for this church and he encourages them and he affirms them in one central truth. He encourages this young church, young in terms of their faith, not necessarily their age, but he encourages this new, this relatively young church in one central truth about them, and that was their conversion. If I were to title this message, I typically don't title my sermons, but if, but if I would, I would say, what a difference conversion makes. First Thessalonians chapter 1, if you would turn with me, beginning in verse 1. Now, when they wrote letters, this obviously was, was originally a letter, they didn't write letters like we did. Where do we put our names? The end of our letters. Now, part of that is because we, our mail system, and now of course email, we 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 know who it's from. But they would they would start their letters. They would tell you up front who's this from. Excuse me. Most of the time, these were would be in a scroll form. So the minute you open the scroll, you know immediately who it's from. He says this is from Paul, Savannah, and Timothy. Savannah is, is simply the Latin equivalent of Silas, and we know that Silas and Timothy had, were traveling with Paul during his second missionary journey. And he says he writes this to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. This is a very common 
this was a very common way of, write, uh, of a salutation in most letters. So there's really nothing significant about that other than he simply identifies I'm writing to the church that is in uh, Thessalonica or the church of the Thessalonians. And, and he begins in verse 2 with his affirmation of their conversion. He affirms them in their conversion. He says, we always thank God for all of you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of God and Father, our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a little grammar lesson here. Um, how many of you remember what a genitive is? What's the form of a genitive? X of Y. Right, so the love of Christ. It's it, it's 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 an X of Y. Two words. One is a noun. One is a substantive. So what? It, it, it a genitive describes a relationship. It's a grammatical form to describe some kind of relationship. Paul uses it in Second Corinthians. We're going to give you a quick lesson here. He says he preaches because the love of Christ compels him. Now, what does that mean? The love of Christ. It could be his love towards Christ. My love for Christ compels me to preach. But the, the genitive love of Christ could also mean what? Christ's love for me, the love of Christ for me, compels me to preach. Or we have what's called a plenary genitive, which means it's both. It's both his love for Christ and Christ's love for him. So, a genitive, an X of Y, describes some kind of a relationship. And in verse 3, we have three genitives. And what are they? Now, the, the, if you have an NIV this morning, I know Ron and Tom, the NIV makes an interpretive decision for you. And this is one of the few places I wish the NIV had not done that. Now, it's, 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 a, it's a perfectly legitimate interpretation. It is certainly a legitimate option. There's nothing wrong with the translation. But it just removes uh, uh, any other interpretive options. So, what are the three genitives? He says, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your endurance of hope. Now, work of faith. Remember, love of Christ. What, what are the interpretive options of work, your work of faith mean? It could either be what? The work that faith produces or the work that is faith. Now, the the NIV opts for what's called a subjective genitive. They say that it's the work that faith produces. Here's why I don't think that's the case. Now, either way, it's not heretical or wrong. Both are, are certainly interpretive options. I just simply think that this is not talk. The emphasis in these three genitives is not on what these virtues produce, but on the, vir- the, the emphasis is on the virtues themselves. It, it doesn't say the works of faith. I think that if, if, if he were wanting to, to focus on what their faith was producing, he would have used it in the plural the works of faith. And we know that that's certainly biblical because the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, James talks about faith without what? Works. works. Not work, 
Not faith without work. Faith without works is dead. So we know that that's a biblical concept. There's nothing wrong with taking the genitive in that, in that way. But I think that this is more along the lines of saying the emphasis is not on what their faith was producing because it wasn't works. It was a work. Singular, their work of faith. In other words, it was the faith, their faith, that's the emphasis. Paul is saying, I, I recall your faith. What was the, what's the second genitive? Labor of love. Now, is that labor that love inspires? Well, then what's the difference between labor and work? You see, it, it, it's awkward. Again, I think in this case, it's much like work of faith. You're lab- the, you, you are laboring at love. Your love is your labor. And we're going to see that if you've read First and Second Thessalonians. He says, you do love each other immensely. I commend you for your love, but I'm going to ask you to love each other even more. So, I think that the first two genitives are more objective genitives in the sense that it's or more appositional, where your work, which is your faith, and your labor, which is your love, the emphasis is on the virtues, not on what the virtues were producing. I, I, I affirm your conversion because of your faith and your love and your hope. Your hope. Now, isn't that interesting? That's typically not a Christian virtue that we list. Now, this is one of the three genitives that I probably would say is more in line with the NIV. I think their endurance was because of their hope. They were enduring because of their hope. But make no mistake about it, I think Paul's emphasis is on the virtues, not on what those virtues were producing. He was commending them and affirming them in their, their faith, their love, and in their hope. In fact, he says... We always thank God for you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. He is affirming them in their conversion because of their faith, hope, and love. So, Paul begins by encouraging this young church and saying, you guys are the real deal. Because of your work of faith, your labor of love, and your enduring hope. And why would enduring hope be a mark of this church? If you've read First Thessalonians, what was one of the things this church was facing? Intense persecution. They weren't wilting under, under the, the threat and the pressure of persecution because of their hope. And we're going to see that in a minute. So he affirms this, this young church in the faith. He affirms their conversion. He says, we, we, we always thank God for you. We recall in the presence of our God and Father these three virtues, faith, Hope and love. This is the triad. Really, this is repeated throughout Paul's letters. The triad of, of true conversion. Faith, hope, and love. We got something going on behind me? Oh, okay. That's all we need is more distractions. Right? He affirms that he begins this, he begins this letter with an, an incredibly affirming note. Um, and now, parents, let's learn something from this. Okay? Don't start with criticism. Now, it's easy for me to say, all my kids are grown. I've made all the mistakes. We've, we've already made all our mistakes. <laughs> Too late now. They're all, they're, they're all messed up. But. There, there is something to be said for, for starting off with some encouragement and affirmation and not criticism. 
what this would have meant to this young church for to receive this letter from Paul, who they dearly missed. We find out, if you read it, they dearly missed him. Um, to, to receive this letter, and he starts off by affirming them in their conversion. What's the one thing that, what's the one thing that, that, with persecution, it may produce in your life? If you start getting persecuted for your faith, maybe you start rethinking, is this, is this real? <laughs> am, I just, am I just imagining this? Maybe, maybe it's not true after all. He affirms them in, in their faith and in their love and in their hope. So, Paul, when it comes to their conversion, Paul is thankful that it happened. He's thankful that, in fact, they had experienced true conversion. But in verses 4 through 6, he explains their conversion. Look at me at verse 4. Knowing your election, brothers loved by God, for a gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much, much assurance. And you know what kind of men we were among you for your benefit. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. What was the foundation or the explanation for their conversion? One word. And we're all afraid to say it. Election. Election. Now, the purpose of this sermon is not to talk about necessarily about election. But it's interesting to me, the one thing that Paul writes to encourage them about is the thing that we try to avoid at all costs because it's so controversial. That's the thing that he raises as an affirmation, an encouragement of their conversion was their election. Now, there's all different kinds of... By the way, most people, I mean, regardless of where you stand on what election is, you can't deny that it, it's in the Bible. I mean, we just read it. But we try to, we try to make it um, more understandable and, and more uh, compatible to, to what we think it should be. And so we, we say election is God looking down the corridor of time. He looks down the corridor of time to see who will choose Him. And then He chooses them on that basis. So, so that theology says I chose God first and then He chose me because I chose Him. Um, the question is, who, who created this? I've often heard it said when I was growing up, it's like a movie that God has seen prior and he knows how it ends. And my question is, who made this movie that God's viewing? <laughs> who made this corridor of time that God's seen? It, it, does, does, God, does God experience time the same way we do, just maybe in a greater degree because he can see a little further ahead? How, remember in, in grade school when you, you'd have two team captains and, and you'd pick teams. They, the two key team captains would pick teams. Here's what election would be like for a lot of, how a lot of people define it. You, you pick a team captain and everybody goes, okay, I want to be on that team. And so they choose Zach. Zach's my team. I want to be on Zach's team. So I assume Zach's team and Zach goes, okay, I choose Jim. Well, that's kind of misleading. He really didn't choose me. I chose him. He says the very reason you were converted was because before eternity began, God chose you. Now the question is, as Paul raises in Ephesians, the, the, the question is, 
not why do, is not why doesn't he choose everyone? The question is why did he choose me? We're asking the wrong question. Why in the world did he choose me? Now there's another mischaracterization of election, and that is there are people who really want to go into heaven. They're banging on heaven's door. Please let me in. And God says, Nope, you can't come in. You're not elect. You can't come in. That is a mischaracterization of the biblical doctrine of election. Uh, election is simply that God chooses you. He said, I choose Danny. He didn't choose this undifferentiated mass. Uh, if anybody would believe in me, I'll choose them. He chose you by name, by person. Before eternity began, I choose you. And he enabled you to believe. And we're going to look at the human side of, this is the divine side, that God, you were God's choice. God picked you to be on his team. What's more meaningful to say, hey, anybody who wants to be on my team can be on my team. Come on. Come on. Or God says, I want Zach, I want Mindy. Let's see here. I want Vicky. He, he, he chose you. That's the divine side. God's choice. But then Paul also says that how does that become actual? How does that work itself out? Look with me back at verse 5. He says, we know that you were chosen by God. Why? Verse 5. For, here's the reason, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. What's the human side of election? The preaching of the gospel, me hearing the gospel, and me responding to the gospel. But notice what he says. He said, our gospel did not come to you in word only. Have you ever seen where you share the gospel with someone and it's like what? They just They understand the words, but the light bulbs just don't come on. They just don't get it. It's, but you share the gospel with someone and they get it. And it's like their spirit comes alive and they understand that Christ died on the cross, that they, they had simple faith and trust in Him. And they believe. What's the difference? Was one just smarter than the other? Was one more spiritually in tune than the other? No. It was the power of the gospel. We call this effective grace. Um, uh, oh, we have plenty of time. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Um, Jesus is... is uh, actually, John. this is important. John chapter 10 really is a continuation of John chapter 9. And he's speaking to the Pharisees. Uh, and, and he's using this image of a good shepherd. Um, he, he says, uh, I assure you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. Now, and that's, as a side, that's not talking about Satan. Because he says, many thieves and robbers have come before me. <laughs> he's talking about the false teachers, the false religious leaders. Now, certainly, Satan is a thief and a robber, but that's not what he's talking about here because he's talking to the Pharisees. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Verse 3, the doorkeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Uh, Look with me now down at verse 14. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. As my Father knows me, I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen, and they will listen to my voice. Who's these other sheep? In the context, he's talking about Gentiles. They will hear my voice and they will be one flock with one shepherd. And then look at me down verse 26. But you don't believe because you're not my sheep. He says, you don't believe. So what does, what does hearing the voice of God, the voice of Jesus, the shepherd, mean? You believe. Something happens. You hear a voice. There's a voice that God awakens the spirit and the soul and they hear and they understand the voice of the shepherd. You see, they were, they were sheep before they believed. You see, verse 20, look at verse 26 again. He didn't say, you are not my sheep because you don't believe. He says what? You don't believe because you're not my sheep. In other words, they are sheep before they believe. How do we explain that? They, God's choice. God's election. That, that, effect, that effective voice for those who hear, it wasn't the gospel wasn't just in word only, it was in power. They heard that inner voice of the shepherd and they understood the gospel and they believed. God's choice, but God's choice becomes effectual in my life when I hear the gospel and when I believe. First thing, Paul is thankful that it happened. Paul is thankful that conversion happened. In verses 4 through 6, he explains how it happened. And then finally, their testimony in verses 7 through 10. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and, and, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. He, he, talks, about, he talks about their testimony. He says in verse 7, As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia came. He said, you were, a, you were the model conversion. Your conversion was a model conversion for everyone else. He says, the power of a changed life is the testimony of true conversion. And he begins by saying, listen guys, you were an example to all the believers in, in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, remember, what were some of the churches in Macedonia? What was the primary church in Macedonia? Philippi. Philippi. And Achaia would have been Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Athens. So, he's saying, you guys were the flagship. You guys, how you responded to the gospel is a model conversion for everyone else. And in fact, in verse 8 he says, your conversion and what happened to you rang out. 
Now that word it, it would be the reverberated. Now I wish we had Greg's symbol here. I want you to imagine a symbol and you strike a symbol and does it go bing? What does it do? It reverberates. This is, this is kind of the sense of the word that Paul uses here. He's saying your faith, your conversion reverberated throughout this whole region. It was like striking a symbol. It, 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 it impacted everyone took notice at what happened to you guys. Now, think of this young church, young in the faith, experiencing persecution. What kind of affirmation would this have been? You guys are the model of conversion. Everybody's heard about what has happened in your life. And what was it? For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So the extent of their testimony was throughout the whole region because of the power of, of what God did in their lives and how they responded to the gospel. But now the content was what? That they did two things. What was it? You, you, what does the text say? This is audience participation time. Two things. They did what? Both involved turning. They turned from what? Idols. And they turned... Two, living God. Notice he didn't just say, you just turn from idols. By the way, what does the word turn mean? Repent. Um, Mentanoia is, is the Greek, but it's interesting to me that in, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old New Testament, there, there's a Greek word called shuv. Shuv means to turn or to turn around. So if you're walking this way uh, and you would want to turn, would be to shuv. Do you to shuv? Do you turn? The the Greek translates the Hebrew shuv with the word for repentance. To turn. Now they a lot of people say, well, repentance is just a change of mind, and that's true. Repentance is a change of mind. But what does Paul say repentance is also a change of? Heart. (laughs) They turned from their idols. Conversion begins when you turn to God, and it also means turning from your idols. You can't have both. You can have your idols and you have God, but you can't have both. See, see, the Greek religion uh, had a plethora of detestable idols. Uh, most of you have read Greek mythology in, in school. Um, that wasn't half of it. Not, not just the Greeks, but the Romans. They had idols that were grotesque and detestable. And, and to follow these idols, that their religion that, that, that was based on these idols was degrading. It was obscene. It was perverse. It... it it generated fear, immorality, demonism, oppression. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Any other culture? In, in both Greek and Roman cultures, idols permeated their society. They had household idols. They had idols at the workplace. They had their 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 uh, uh, their trade guilds and their trade unions had idols. Their, of course, the state itself was an idol. Caesar was an idol. Uh, 
their, their culture was permeated. Every level of their culture, every, every, we can't, we can't fully appreciate this. Every level of their life was permeated with some kind of idol. And what did the church in Thessalonica do? They rejected all of those idols. Which is why they were being persecuted. You see, for someone back then to reject and follow Jesus Christ meant rejecting the very foundation of their society itself. Their whole society was based on idols. To reject idols was to reject the very foundation of their society. And I would say that conversion fundamentally involves a change of God's. Conversion is not just saying, you know what, the the Christian gospel kind of makes sense. It's a good philosophy of life, you know, uh, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, the golden rule. It's a good philosophy of life. I think I'll adopt that philosophy. That's not conversion. To say, you know, Jesus will help my life make more sense to me. He he, he makes more sense out of life and he, he makes me feel better. And uh, I think I'll follow... No. That's not conversion. Conversion at its very heart, fundamentally, is a change of God's. It involves a change of God's where once you served idols of self and pleasure and power and worldly gain, now we follow Jesus. See, it's not just a change of idea. It's not just a change of mind. It is a change of God's. It is a change of my allegiance. And when we call people to, 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 to Christ, we call them to, a, to allegiance to a new God, which means a rejection of their old gods. That's hard to explain to them. And by the way... Uh, uh, a devotional I read this week said, when we call them to that, we probably shouldn't call them very lightly. We probably should explain that to them to some extent, what this means. What following Jesus really means. It, it, it's not just throwing Jesus in your backpack of philosophies. It is a fundamental change in God's, but not just in God's, but look at verse 9 again. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to do what? To serve. What's another word for serve that we have in our translations? Worship. Those are interchangeable. The the word for serve and worship are interchangeable. We see this in Romans chapter 12, which is your reasonable service. A lot of our translations say reasonable, Dan. Worship. Service and worship in, in, in our English translation of the Greek is interchangeable. You see, this is a matter of worship. Conversion is, who are you going to worship? Yourself? Your reason? The way you think things ought to be? Are you going to worship the, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, the, the Ramalama Ding Dong, whoever you... Who are you going to worship? Uh, how he ever became uh, popular... Well, only in the 60s could Bob Dylan have been famous. But he wrote a song and said, you're going to serve somebody. 
You're going to serve somebody. And that's really true. He says, you turn from idols to worship the living and true God, which means there are false gods. He said, you turn to God to do two things. To serve Him, to worship Him, and then to do what? Verse 10. To serve and to wait. To wait. We turn, we serve, and we wait. We wait for Jesus to return. Listen, the second coming is not some secondary esoteric doctrine in the, in the New Testament. It is a central truth to our faith. It is one of the reasons that inspires hope or, or inspires endurance. When, when, way back at the beginning of the letter, he says your, your, your endurance of hope, what were they hoping for? Hoping that things will get better? What, was their, what is our ultimate hope? Christ's return. In all deference to my dispensational friends, it's not the rapture. It's the second coming of Christ. It is when we will see Christ visibly. And as we're going to see later in this letter, be with Him forever. That's our hope. And it's interesting, he says to wait. Now, that's not, not this kind of waiting. But the waiting here is eager anticipation. It, it, it's a waiting that's looking forward to it. I, I remember when I was a senior in high school, um, I loved the Lord and uh, I, I've always had a love for His Word. When, when, things, when I got saved, I just always loved God's Word. I, uh, back then, all I had was King James. You know, and as, as a high schooler, man, I, I just ate it up. I didn't care if it was... I don't understand half of it. I ate it up. Um, and uh, I, uh, where was I going with that? I don't know. I just I just lost my train of thought. What? Yeah. Well, anyway. Oh, that's what it was. Thank you, honey. My wife knows me too well. So, but I remember reading about the second coming of Christ and His return, and and I kept saying, you know, I really that I really want that, but I really like to play some college football first. <laughs> Because I was doing fairly well in football, I said, "Lord, if you could just wait till after I get a college scholarship, you know, and maybe some of you did that, you know, I'll wait till I get married first. And, but that, 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 for us, an integral part of our conversion is an eager anticipation and waiting for His return. So, Paul affirms them that their conversion did happen. He explains to them how it happened, or why it happened. And now he shows them that he knows it happened because they turned from their idols to serve the living and true God and they are waiting in eager anticipation for the return of Christ. Let let me summarize this and, and we'll go. Conversion begins in eternity past with his sovereign election of me. That... That's the very heart and ground and foundation of conversion is God's sovereign choice in in eternity past of me. Number two, that choice 
is actuated, that choice is applied in my life, whatever uh, a- a- adjective you want to, 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 or verb you want to use, it becomes real in my life through the preaching of the gospel and through God's awakening my heart to the truth of that gospel in power, not just in word. And number three, it leads to a life of turning from idols to the true God in a life of worship and patient waiting for the return of Christ. Now, if I were to ask each one of us to share your conversion experience, they would all be different. They would all be different. My daughter-in-law went to, I think it was spring break in Florida. She was in Florida. And walked by and there was a street preacher. She heard a street preacher. And God used a street preacher. And the Word became powerful and effective in her life. And she trusted in Christ from a street preacher. So please stop condemning street preachers. If that's not your bag, that's fine. But people are getting saved. And, and don't say that, well, a lot of people are getting turned off. A lot of people are getting turned off by you, too. Some people, Tom, how'd your dad come to the Lord? A tract. Did, did someone hand it to him? Handed him a tract. And his dad became a missionary. Not, not that missionaries are any more spiritual than but that, that's, a, that's a degree of sacrifice of service, right? His dad became a missionary in Africa. Now he's raised seven godly kids. Seven? Six. From a tract. Some of you came to know the Lord and it was rather dramatic. Others of you came to the Lord, you don't even really remember when it was. You know, I always tell parents that our job as parents is to give our kids a boring testimony. Yeah, a lot of our conversion experience, I don't really, in my life, it's all I've ever known. But in spite of the fact that all of our conversions are very, very different, whether it's street preacher, a track, a Sunday school teacher, however it was, some dramatic, some not dramatic at all. These are the elements of true conversion. It began in eternity past through God's sovereign choice of you, but that choice was applied in your life at some time through the gospel. You don't just have a dream and a vision and now you're saved. It's through the preaching of the gospel and an awakening of your spirit and your soul to the truth of the gospel where you believe in Christ as your only hope of salvation. And that that life then turns to idols, to the true God in a life of worship and patient waiting and eager anticipation of the, of the return of Christ. Regardless of the nature of your conversion, these are the principles. They were the models. This was the model conversion and this is what we see. So I'm not suggesting that unless your conversion is like mine or, or unless it was dramatic like the Apostle Paul's, you weren't converted. No, these are, the, these are the things that are true of all conversions. Does that make sense? Not the manner of your conversion, but the principles of conversion. So I need to ask you, have you turned from false idols to the one true and living God? And the Bible says we do that by faith and faith alone. Not faith in works. Faith alone. Because of grace alone. Have you experienced true conversion? Or is Jesus just a philosophy? 
Let's pray.